Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Good morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I am especially good because we are wrapping up this summer of behind the curtain, behind the robe, ooh, ooh, as opposed to underneath the robe, which is creepy. We don't want to know what's underneath the robe. Although yeah, yeah, yeah. I think actually that J-Rob probably wears those Hawaiian trunks like you see the dudes on the beaches <laughs> and big, tall black socks and sandals. Don't you think that's what he's got under his robe? It's like some sort of surfer dude. I want to think that anyway, because it makes me happy. Well, uh, listeners. <laughs> Beyond Nia taking taking his places mentally, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, uh, uh, I think they're probably wearing jeans and t-shirts most of the time under there, and then they have the fufu collar that makes it look like they're wearing. Okay, but again, Nia. Okay, so listeners, <laughs> this is our last episode of um, uh, Summer of Scotus where we're kind of sort of going behind uh, the curtain. We're lifting up the veil on some topics related to the court. Right. And, and this directly relates, by the way, what I yes. think they wear under their robes. And, and notwithstanding Nia thinking that uh, Supreme Court justices um, are perhaps wearing less professional clothes than we can imagine. I, 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 I happen to be uh, of a different perspective. I kind of think that particularly with the justices that we have been uh, nominating and confirming, most of them have been in professional settings so much of their life, okay, that um, they continue to wear professional clothes underneath the ropes. See, okay. and I think Scalia wore t-shirts that said, I'm with stupid with an arrow pointing to either side of his colleagues. <laughs> Right. I just say I want to believe that the reason that I think it plays into our last episode here is we're going to talk about generalized diversity, what we've been talking about all along. So we talked about the religious diversity on the court or, in fact, the lack thereof in most for most of the years of the court. Um, And we've talked about the gender, the lack of gender diversity until Sandra Day broke the broke the glass gavel as it were. I don't know if that's even a proper metaphor, but. You know, um, you know, was able to. They call it a glass ceiling. No. uh, uh, Well, I mean, I don't think uh, the metaphor applies, but I mean, ascended the bench, right? Right. Uh, Because those steps, okay, were not an option for women before Sandra Day O'Connor. Right. Just like, you know, they weren't an option for African-Americans before Thurgood Marshall. Thank you. And so, yeah. the, and, and we have the race diversity question that is now being answered um, uh, with a black woman for the first time. Yeah, um, okay. But also, so all of those, those um, sort of diversity issues have been met and wrestled with as people have, have joined the court, um, except for one, I think. 
And that's the one I want to talk to you today. This is the reason that my t-shirt metaphor plays is because you just talked about the life experience of Supreme Court justices. Yes. Their work experience and their life experience. Now, we yes. do we have had several Supreme Court justices that were not born to money, right? That's been a historically true thing. Yes, throughout the court's history, we have had justices who have, to use a different metaphor, uh, pulled, them, pulled themselves up, okay, by their bootstraps. Right, right? that have been and objectively poor and poor. then yes. okay. made the court through hard work. They work went to and, the right schools, they clerked for the right folks, they held the right jobs, and they... And, and some of it was, you know, luck and happenstance, right, okay? Um, you know, and I mentioned this uh, when I teach judicial politics, um, you know, uh, you can, in the worst way, want to serve on the United States Supreme Court. But if there aren't any vacancies on the court, <laughs> or the president is of a different ideological or partisan bent than you are, then you're not going to get picked, right? You're just not going to get picked. Well, and with some windows, we go quite a number of years before yeah, there's I mean, a vacancy, there, right? Like there, 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 there was a period on the Rehnquist court, the court led by Chief Justice William Rehnquist, where there was no turnover on the court's membership for over a decade. For over a decade. Right. So, okay. so you might be primed and ready. And unless you're also a murderer, there's no, there's no <laughs> opening. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, or unless you try to get the president to pull an FDR thing where like, I'm just going to put extra seats on the court because I feel yeah. like it, which also, as we see with um, President Biden kind of died out. Right. There was some threat of that. Yeah. he went And, and it, it's something that regularly people talk about. We should just add seats to the court as if they won't eventually have the same problem. Yeah, because math you know, doesn't change this problem. It just extends. It just kicks the can down the road. Yeah, because, you know, if, if one political party goes ahead and adds seats to the Supreme Court, guess what the other political party is going to do when they get in, when, when they get in charge? Right? Or even if they don't, if yes. for some reason the court drops two or three folks in a year for retirement, for passing, for whatever, now the president of the opposition party gets to put people in those seats that you thought were safely whatever, whatever, and now you're you have again the same problem so but but what i what i wanted to get at with this this episode is is that and we touched on it briefly in last episode which is there's sort of the route that you take right and so that's only been in the modern context of the court right that that you yeah. take the you know the elite underschool the elite school the the clerkships and then the judging in a or or a big law firm right that's kind of where but but in back in the day you had a lot more variety sure so the court is actually less diverse now in in some ways it is less diverse so on certain measures as we you know uh, as we've already discussed right okay on it's certain more measures diverse. yeah right um, you know, we uh, uh, probably by the time this podcast episode um, is released, okay, 
um, we will have uh, once again three women on the court. Uh, Sonia Sotomayor, or four women, excuse me, four women. Um, Justices Sotomayor, Kagan, Coney Barrett, and the fourth will be um, uh, uh, Brown Jackson. Right? When does when does a new just as a side note? I know it's not part of our discussion today, but when do new justices like do they have to wait for the new term to start? Is that how? Well, a lot of it depends on when the justice they are replacing decides to retire. Okay. Now Stephen Breyer did something very unusual. He announced months in advance he was going to retire at the end of the current Supreme Court term. Which they, it goes through July? Is well, that? typically the end of June, right? Okay. So the way he worded it was when the court finishes its business for this term, he's going to retire, okay? Typically, what we've seen uh, over time is that justices will complete a term and then in the summer, they will go ahead and say, I'm retiring, right? Um, or they die, okay? And if they die unexpectedly, okay? See Scalia, for instance, you know, dying in uh, February, um, a day or two before Valentine's Day in 2016, okay? Um, so that's different, right? At that point, the new justice takes office you know, swears the oath once they've been confirmed, right? Okay. Um, and if the confirmation also, hearing doesn't last that long, then that could conceivably be very within quickly. a month or two. Okay. Yeah. On the other hand, okay, you know, as we saw with, for instance, um, the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation process, right? Um, you know, he was announced in early July by... President Trump, but the Supreme Court term actually began before he was confirmed by the Senate. So if the confirmation process doesn't go well, okay, you can be cooling your heels waiting <laughs> to take your seat. So a lot of it depends on variables beyond the control of the nominee. Although I have to assume that since we're going to talk about background for just a second, um, I noticed on your list of things that people had done before they came to the Supreme Court, and we're going to talk about that because I find it fascinating. Uh, librarian is not on there, so I apparently need to fix that. Um, yeah, yes, 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 you do. So, because uh, librarians would make great Supreme Court justices, I believe. Well, Some I librarians, mean, law librarians are... Oh, I mean, Both brilliant of, at the law and I mean, patient. A lot, of the, a lot of the work of the justices is looking up stuff. Is research. Okay? That's right. Is, is research, right? Okay. Um, and if you can write, but anyways. But I assume that when you are a business person or when you're a lawyer at a big law firm, that you actually, the nominee also needs to give notice Okay, I've been confirmed. Like, you don't want to quit your job till you have another job. That's sort of the standard of yes. job search uh, yes. for everybody, by the way, listeners. If you have a job, don't quit your job till you get another job. That It's just easier. Um, that the, is good career advice. Yes. So you're at, say, big law firm X. And, and you've been put up as a Supreme, you know, as a nominee. 
clearly you've told your boss because otherwise your boss is going to find out in ways that are not good for your future career. So you've told your boss and you've said, I would like to continue working at this firm if I am not confirmed by the Senate. Your boss says, fine. So in the time that you're waiting for confirmation, they are moving things off your plate, right? They're giving your clients their, to other lawyers in the firm because they can always give them back to you or you can generate new clients, but they need to get those people's work done. Correct. And you're, you're busy preparing for nomination hearings, but you still need to give notice. Like you still need to say, I mean, uh, just sorry, as another piece of career advice for anybody listening to this who is, who is new to the job market, not showing up one day for work is a terrible way to quit your job. You should give the person at least two weeks notice. You should yes. say, I, you know, I found another, another job. I'm, and give your boss a chance to say, ooh, can we counter offer or, you know, or I wish you well and I, I want to wrap up your work. That's the thing. You need to wrap up all of your work, everything that you've been doing so that you don't jack the next person who comes into the job. And I'm assuming that the nominee has to do that too. So you couldn't just, if they, if they, if your nomination went through in a day, which at this point would be, at this point in American politics would be nothing shy of a miracle. But if it went through in a day, it's not like you could show up the next day and say, see ya, I'm going to go be a Supreme Court. I mean, you could, but what a jerk you would be. And you'd be burning a lot of bridges well, in the I mean, legal the, profession. The, the or whichever profession. The nomination of Brown Jackson uh, really highlights this pretty nicely. Once President Biden announced that she was his nominee to replace Justice Breyer, um, the current court that she serves on, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, took her out of rotation Ah, for being picked for their three judge panels. Oh, right. And I would assume that if you were any other kind of judge and you had a docket, you would need to get through the docket or hand it off to other yeah. people. There's a lot of yeah. administrative whatever that goes into. So, I mean, in, and again, because the, the recent slate of nominees to become Supreme Court justices have all been federal court judges with the exception of Elena Kagan. Okay. Um, and Elena, Elena Kagan was uh, the Solicitor General for the Obama administration. But when the Obama administration began to consider her, she actually started removing herself from cases that her office was thinking about appealing to the Supreme Court so that she would not have to recuse herself from those cases if she was picked by the president confirmed by the Senate, okay? So as you point out here, Nia, it's a rather delicate um, uh, employment situation, particularly because the... Um, That's really smart though, to, to, to remove yourself from cases that you know you might have to adjudicate Yes. In a different position. That's well, I mean, it, she's obviously smart because because um, yeah. she's Elena yeah. Kagan. And, and, and we can get to that in just a few moments. But let's return to, OK, 
something that you wanted to go ahead and discuss, which is um, the lack of professional diversity of the modern Supreme Court justice. Yes. Right, because on your list, sorry, uh, listeners. So Augie makes notes for these. If you're not aware, Augie makes notes for our, uh, for our um, podcast. Um, I know we should probably script them, but we're just never going to do that. So that's just how it is. But he makes notes. Yeah, yeah. And in yeah, one we, of the... We, we figured out early on, listeners... That scripting okay, wasn't going to work. That, that me and I just don't do well with scripts, yeah. right? Um, that... Uh, and we attempted to go ahead and use <laughs> scripts early on, okay? And we found ourselves deviating so much from yeah. them. That we it was just, like, it ended up being a waste of time. Yes. Um, and it's not what we do here. What we do here are conversations. We follow yeah, we're having conversation. a conversation. So if we're actually paying attention to what the other person is saying, okay, we're going to go, we're going to go off on tangents, right? right. We're gonna, and, and guess you what? Know, you can't script a tangent. Okay, and you know, you can't script the tangent. Yeah, it reminds me, I heard this story one time about, and I don't know whether listeners will know the film Good Morning Vietnam, but um, there were several parts in the, in the script where it would say at the top of the page, Robin Williams talks, and then there'd be a blank piece of paper, (laughs) or two or three blank pieces of paper, and then they would come back with the rest of the script, because I've seen interviews with the director of that movie and the director of that movie is Barry Levinson. Um, and Barry Levinson said, on one hand, um, directing that movie um, was very difficult because when you're used to dealing with just normal actors, they want words on a page of a screenplay. But he said with Robin Williams, we found out early on in the recording that that just didn't work. Right. So he said there were some days of filming where. It'd just be it, hours of him. It was just riffing. Improv. Right. right. Yeah, and right okay. not to suggest that Augie and I are anywhere near as talented as Robin Williams. because Oh, my goodness. Both, no, 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 no. We both <laughs> would never even dream of saying we could fit those shoes. Um, yeah, no, no, no. But, but 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 in my notes, okay. Yeah, you have a bunch of listed things, and none of most of them make sense, right? Yes. Uh, elected officials, uh, diplomats, businessmen. Although I'm interested in the businessmen, so I want to come back to that. General practice lawyers, right? Stuff at state court judges. All of those make sense. But then you have in here professional athlete, and I'm like, <laughs> what professional athlete was on the the court and and i'll tell you where my mind went my mind went to oh one of them must have been a tennis player or a golfer right yeah, because kind of sort supreme of a, court you know, justice sort of you know an elite genteel kind of sports where yeah you know it's a kind of sort of elite country club exactly okay. lacrosse okay. right like i'm thinking okay. one of those sports it's not though yeah. is it no, in, in fact, uh, uh, Nia <laughs> walked in uh, on a justice that I did my dissertation about. Uh, justice Byron White uh, was uh, an All-American football player at the University of Colorado. Um, that's actually where he got the nickname that he absolutely despised, Wizard White. 
Um, after he graduated from college, he had a Rhodes Scholarship to study law um, over in uh, Great Britain. And after he did that, when he came back, he got drafted uh, by the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, inter interestingly enough, my favorite football team. Um, and at one point, he was the highest paid professional football player in the United States. Um, but um, uh, he was forced to choose um, because the next team who had his contract, I believe it was the, uh, the Detroit Lions, uh, went ahead and said that he could not go to law school while also being a professional football player. And Byron White gave up his career as a professional football player. Okay. I can't imagine that now. Yeah, I mean, I can't imagine Tom Brady saying, you know what, I'm going to give up <laughs> these millions and the adulation of my fans and all the perks that come with when that, it, including being when it does happen, Leah, it, it, when it does happen, um, you know, and, and what comes to my mind was a couple years ago, uh, an offensive lineman for the Kansas City Chiefs when they won the Super Bowl. And I, I'm blanking on his name, but he went ahead and quit football so he could uh, go to med school. Um, there was an offensive lineman for the Baltimore Ravens um, who just went ahead and quit because he wanted to get his advanced degree in mathematics, right? Well, and so, we know that movie stars occasionally do that. They quit school. They quit acting for a period of time to go to, I, I don't know, I think Jodie Foster went to Yale and other people um, yeah. have gone to various schools. But I would think that that is not a normal. And like I said, the, the sport itself surprised me because yes. when you said, well, you use a football player, I was like, wait, what? Because that just doesn't seem like, and good for him and apparently was a great justice. And so that's like, that's all cool. You, you have in here soldier. Yeah, we, there, there were two, distinct, just, oh, sorry. two, distinct, two distinct periods of where we produced uh, a fair number of Supreme Court justices who had military backgrounds, who actually served active duty. Uh, post-Civil War, okay, um, and post-World War I and II, okay? Um, oh, and we've know, talked about at Arlington how they're, yeah, so, they're noted know, as soldiers. So, okay, after the Civil War makes sense, too, because everybody was involved. Yeah, I mean, because it was the North and the South, right? So, I mean, okay. but, I mean, you had uh, soldiers, um, you know, Elected officials, right? Well, Nia, President Nia, Taft. Okay, but hold on here, Nia. Um, now I, I get to go ahead and quiz you here. Can you name the last Supreme Court justice who had experience as an elected official? Where they ran for office, okay, won an election and served as an elected official. Is there someone after Sandra Day O'Connor, or is she no, the one? She's the last one. Okay. okay. She's I know that she, she was in Arizona, right? As some sort of elected official. I yeah, don't remember what. She served in uh, the state senate. 
Okay. Okay. Um, so, you know, elected officials, diplomats slash bureaucrats, right? You know, John Jay, who was one, you know, was one of our first chief justices, <laughs> or yes. the first chief justice. <laughs> yes. Okay. Who, would, I mean, who also was our secretary uh, he, of state or something, or no, he quit to be the state. He quit to go ahead and be governor of New York. <laughs> oh, that's right? what it is. <laughs> right, okay. But while he was chief justice, Washington, you know, relied upon him and he actually negotiated the then widely criticized Jay Treaty, right? It was known for him because he negotiated it, right? But, you know, we've had diplomats. I mean, think about this, listeners. What our, our, our first prominent chief justice was John Marshall. John Marshall's job before he became chief justice was secretary of state. He was secretary right. of state. That's okay? what I was thinking. Okay. He was secretary of state. Um, you know, his successor as chief justice, Roger Taney, served as the secretary of the treasury for president Andrew Jackson. There's you a tough job. Yeah, particularly with a boss who basically didn't like anybody to tell him what he could do or not do. Right. I was going to say anybody who worked for Andrew Jackson and didn't and didn't commit harikari is a pretty. I mean, so I mean, you know, tough customer. We've had business people. We've had um, you know state court judges, night night school graduates. Chief Justice Warren Burger got his law degree from St. Paul Law School, okay, which at the time was a night school, okay, or in today's probably circumstance, it would be an online school. So he worked a day job. He worked a day job. And just a right? regular. Yes. See, okay. that's, uh, um, you, you have on here actuaries. Yes. Like, isn't it the people who decide how much insurance should pay for yes. an eye or a finger yes. or a whatever yes. loss of a loved one mm -hmm. um, and newspapermen? Yeah, you had, you had uh, uh, at least two of our Supreme Court justices were publishers of newspapers. In one case, it was the family business. Which one is that? Oh, I knew you were oh, going to ask. Yes. I did that thing. Yeah, you Sorry. stopped me. Yes, that's you okay. Me. But so yeah. we've had journalists. So, so, but, but what we're getting at here, listeners, is the question of back in the day, you had all these different people with these different experiences on the court together, right? A night school. Now, I don't know if they were all on the same time. So just forgive me here, but a night school graduate and a journalist and, you know, and a diplomat all on there together are are going to bring a diversity of understanding of, of the American experience yes. in a way that I am not entirely certain the court has now. I, I don't know that, well, it I don't has know an, that it, there's it, enough it, diversity to understand the regular American experience, Americans experience at this point. Yeah, I mean, in, 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 you know, in listeners, me and I are not saying that having really smart credential people 
is always a bad thing. Oh no. Okay? I mean, because again, in a previous in in the in the most recent podcast episode, as I went ahead and reminded the listeners, okay, the the two people in this conversation have multiple degrees. I mean, we kind of sort of think that you know higher education is a good thing, right. right? Both of us have worked in it for the for all of our adult lives. Okay, but when you're talking about applying the law in, in, in addressing legal disputes, right now we have a bunch of people who basically look at the law from a very limited set of experiences, right? Right. You know, and, and Nia, you heard me say this off recording, but um, one of the reasons why I liked Judge Brown Jackson as a potential nominee to the Supreme Court was that in addition to checking most of the boxes of the modern Supreme Court justice, she also had a couple jobs, okay, that are different than most of the colleagues that she will be joining on the court. So at one point, she was a public defender. Ah. The last time we had a justice with any criminal defense experience was Thurgood Marshall. Wow. Okay. Thurgood Marshall. 40 years. Okay. 50. It's a bunch of years. Sorry, I'm not okay. going to try to do that. I mean, that, he, he but... served until the end of the Bush 41. Okay, he retired. Uh, oh, okay. But he got on the court in the 1960s. Right. That's what okay. I was thinking was. Yeah, the... yeah. Okay, when he first got on the court, right? She also served on the United States Sentencing Commission. At one point was the vice chair. So she has experience applying or implementing policy, which again is somewhat different than most of her colleagues, right? So, I mean, that's why I thought in addition to her experience as a federal judge, okay, and, you know, going to Harvard, blah, 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 and being a former Supreme Court clerk, what really appealed to me was she was going to bring a different set of experiences, right? Right. And one of the criticisms of the current crop of justices, okay, is that they are one type of lawyer. They're one type of judge, okay? Um, You know, most of them have not been trial court judges, right? Most of them, you know, have not practiced the law outside of government or the academy. I mean, most law in the United States never goes to court, okay, and is hardly ever impacted by law review articles, right? You know, we're talking about, you know, family law practitioners. We're talking about tort attorneys, right? We're talking about, um, you know, uh, general practice law firms that handle everything from, you know, DUIs and traffic citations. Malpractice. Okay, to malpractice, to um, uh, making wills, okay, and handling estates. 
or dealing with uh, disputes with the IRS, right? Right. Okay. Um, you know, they don't care about if there's a doctrinaire change coming from the Supreme Court, okay, that is being discussed by a handful of law professors in the United States. Which is not to say that that is unimportant, but a lot of the cases that come to the Supreme Court force the court to go beyond legal theory and actually contemplate how's this going to impact the parties? Right? Right. How's this going to impact the nation? And if you don't have a huge amount of experience doing that, the other, the other thing that it strikes me about the, the Supreme Court is um, if you are if you've been through the system that here modernly they have mostly been through, then you're also, I, I think, and this is just my opinion, that your, your writing and your explanation of, this, of, of the opinion is written in a certain way. It's written for academia, it's written for other judges, and your average person has to have somebody like, and you named a bunch the last time we were talking, and I'm just gonna go with the ones I know, Nina Totenberg, Jeffrey Tubin, and you, right? People to say what that means is, yes. what that means for you as a regular human is, blah, 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 and then it gets translated. Yes. And there's a part of me that's like, maybe if people had more raw living experience with explaining concepts like that to non-lawyers or non-law students, then they might, the opinions might be written or there might be, this is what I really want. And J-Rob, if you're listening, which I know you're not, but if you are, one, good on you with the beach shorts and two, Please put in a TLDR that's a simple thing for people who want to basically understand what you're trying to say. I know that that's not how things are written. And I tell students all the time, it's too bad they don't have that on cases. That's what your professor's for. Good luck. Um, and, you know, you can go ask your professor. But a lot of us don't have a professor. A lot of people are not in academia. And so they get these opinions and they don't know what that means for everyday living. You, um, you mentioned writing. a case earlier when we were off air, and I want to bring it up here because it's, it's a good example of this to me, is the case where they decided that the Boston bomber could get the death penalty. Yes. Yeah. That has ramifications for every other person on death row or potentially who wasn't on death row but could be moved to death row. Right. There's yeah. some real there's some real issues there that are. And if they don't write clearly enough, then it makes it really difficult for those people who are on death row. And yes, right. many of them are represented by attorneys, but how can they help out with their the defense if, you know, a reasonable person cannot pick up a Supreme Court opinion and understand what the court is saying? Uh, yeah, I'll give you a classic example of the point that you're making. Right. Uh, the Supreme Court's uh, decision in Brown versus Board of Education. Um, the majority opinion was written by Chief Justice Earl Warren. 
And constitutional law scholars have criticized the opinion um, for not being legally rigorous and well-developed in terms of theory. But many practitioners and many common day, everyday Americans immediately understood what the court was doing because Earl Warren wrote a very short, and I would argue, easy to understand, this is what we are doing and why, right? Now, it may not have made all that much sense in terms of legal theory, and he certainly pulled his punches in regards to acknowledging that the court was basically overturning decades of precedent, okay, and why they were doing it. But the bottom line was, you could understand that the court was saying desegregation of public schools was unconstitutional, right? Right. Okay. And I'm afraid, and others are afraid, that because all of these justices, and for that matter, most of their clerks have a similar experience, they're not writing for the public. They're not writing for government officials who may have to implement these rulings. Right. right. And, and that's hugely important when they decide things about administrative you know, law. law. When they're talking about the OSHA ruling that you're going to talk about in a couple, three weeks when, when they wrap up. Um, sorry, listeners, you'll hear it next week because of the way we release these. But um, in, we're, we're early in June and they're going to come out and Augie's going to talk about all the 33 cases they're deciding. Good luck with those episodes. Um, <laughs> but, but one of those is that OSHA, whether OSHA has the right to... Has the authority to go ahead and to, require businesses... To mandate... More, you know, that had more than 100 employer, employees could require those employers to implement a COVID-19 vaccination uh, program, right? In the, right. Supreme, in the Supreme Court issued a stay so that that regulation never got implemented, right? But why, right? And what's the meaning or the takeaway for other federal agencies? Exactly. Right? Okay. Because other federal agencies, you know, look to Supreme Court cases to go ahead and figure out what they can and cannot do. Well, right? and when I'm in charge of the Space Force, I'm yes. not a trained lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, I, the, I need for them to be clearer Yes. in telling me what I can and cannot do. Or, or you know, uh, there's, there's going to be another case that we'll probably get to. Um, can somebody bring a lawsuit against a cop, okay, um, uh, who didn't give them a, uh, the Miranda warning? Oh, good, good question. Okay, it, it, and this has a huge impact for not only people who might be suspects, okay, um, of you know committing a crime and are interviewed by the cops. But this has a huge impact on police officers. Right. And policing in general. Okay. Because if police officers who, you know, may have made an honest mistake in failing to give somebody the Miranda warning, then, but then can be sued down the road, 
Okay. They're going to Mirandize you for every conversation you ever have with a police officer from then on. Or, or they may be more leery or less willing to actually go ahead and have conversations with members of the public when they're investigating crimes. Right. Because they're going to be like, well, if I have this conversation, do I have to give them the Miranda warning? And if I give them the Miranda warning, they're going to shut up. So, you know, I'm not going to get any information to help me investigate this crime. Right. A right? chilling effect on investigation, which we don't want as a society, because yes. we generally want them to be able to investigate crimes and find, find out who did it and yes. then punish that individual or individuals. Here's the third problem with the lack of professional diversity. And we, again, we touched upon this in a previous podcast episode, okay? You bring together a bunch of high ego, type A overachieving all-stars. These are intellectual all-stars, right? Say what you will about, you know, Supreme Court justices today. But I will challenge anybody who says we don't have a bunch of really smart justices. Yeah, right? just because you like someone does not mean they're not intelligent. Or you dislike somebody doesn't mean that they're not intelligent. Right. right? I mean, you can like somebody. Yeah, the way you said it was oh, just, sorry. Because you like, just because you like somebody. I'm like, yeah, I like a lot of people. They're probably not the smartest apple in the barrel, but I, I still like them. Right. right? Sorry, and, but what I meant was dislike. You're, you're correct. Yeah, okay. Just because you dislike someone because of ideological or political or, or past experiences or whatever, doesn't mean that person's not smart. smart. It doesn't mean that person doesn't, is not a, a well-educated individual. Okay. But you bring all those <laughs> talents together okay in a conference room which okay. brings that and you get the scorpions it's my favorite thing that you talk about is you get the scorpions right yeah, you that, get all these prickly people who are going to form alliances and they're going to form cliques it's like high school they're going to have ins and outs and it, it, it is the supreme court version of mean girls yes right okay um, and we saw this, and again, the metaphor scorpions in a bottle um, uh, was uh, the name of a book written by um, Harvard Law Professor Noah Feldman, okay, about the justices appointed to the Supreme Court by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, right? Right. I mean, in, 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 in some of these folks were just superstars, right? You know, but really, you throw them in that room together and boy, they and turn boy, into they petty. just. 12 year old yes okay. throwing you yeah know. and and and, yeah. and and again you know let's say somebody gets nominated to the court they're confirmed and most of their experience okay has been as a state judge right a state judge right perfectly competent they have good judicial temperament right but, you know, they understand that as a state judge, it's a high volume business, right? Right. Chop, chop, people. Let's keep it moving. Keep it moving. You can't spend, you know, months trying to find that right sentence for an opinion. No, you cut to the chase. You address the legal question. You write it clearly enough so that the parties in the case and others 
in similar situations can understand it. And then you move on. You got to move on, right? You may not even remember some of the decisions you issued as a state court judge. Because Although again, they'll find them when you go up for of nomination. Course they will. <laughs> but you personally may not because it's a high volume business, right? Nia, it's kind of sort of like our experience when we were graduate students. And at the end of the semester, we had written so many papers. Oh. You, pull, you pull up the paper and you're like, I don't recall writing this. <laughs> my okay. name's on it and I don't my cheat, so on, I know I wrote it. But... Okay, my name's on it. I got a grade. I vaguely, uh, I vaguely remember um, looking up the books for this, <laughs> but I think I might have written four papers that week, right? Right. Um, or, you know, you get somebody who was the head of an agency, right? And you got to manage 2,000 employees. You don't have time for drama. You don't have time, okay, for petty disputes. You know why? Because you got a 2,000 person agency, okay, who's getting pressure from Congress, the media, and the president to get something done. Right. So you subvert your ego. Okay. And you get the work done. You get the work done. When I'm in charge of the Space Force, that's how it's going to work. Because there's a huge <laughs> amount of, of paperwork that goes along with being yes. the secretary of, of something like that. I want to, before we, before we wrap up this episode, I know that there are, um, there's a recommendation in your notes that, uh, I, I'm not sh yeah. sure where it comes from, but. Yeah, the, the recommendation comes from um, uh, University of Tennessee law professor, uh, Ben Barton, uh, who's uh, written a book um, called The Credentialed Court. Um, and Barton uh, suggests that one of the ways we could possibly um, address this rather limited professional experience. And I love this suggestion. Okay, of the modern Supreme Court is to resurrect something that used to be required of all Supreme Court justices. And what practice is that, Nia? Circuit writing. Yes. When they okay. had to go out and adjudicate things out in the big wild world. Yes, um, for listeners, if you're not familiar with this, when the Supreme Court was first created uh, uh, by the United States Congress with the Judiciary Act of 1789, okay, uh, the Supreme Court had very little business. I mean, because the government had just been formed, right? Um, and most legal disputes were handled at the state level. The United States Congress required each justice to ride circuit meaning they would have to spend a couple months out of every year participating in lower federal court cases as uh, one of a number of either trial court, trial courts or appeals courts, right? And it actually forced the judges to see the kinds of legal disputes that were out 
in the rest of the country. They had to work with lower federal court judges so they would get an appreciation of how the Supreme Court should write an opinion so it could be used and interpreted in a meaningful manner by the lower federal courts. But moreover, they got to interact with lawyers and the public. And I was going to say, and defendants and prosecutors. Government and, attorneys. And regular judges folks. who do this in the regular world. And when you go out to dinner, the waitress and the wherever where you are, like the people, like and, you, and, you and, don't, and, and, when people say, I know what it's like to live in Seattle because I was there overnight at the airport. No, you don't. You, <laughs> no. you don't know what that's like. Like I, you've been yeah. to the airport. That's not the same thing. So I, I love yeah, this went, idea. And Do, and Justice Thomas is set for this idea because he has an RV. Uh, yes. So he could lead the way. He could be the first one. Yes. He could lead the way, and he could go and sit on like appeals courts in a few states and and they'd be like dude is that justice thomas and you know I, I also I, although i I'm, I'm suggesting justice thomas but um but any of the others would also be awesome and maybe well, I mean, we could just have one rv and they all take turns driving it around the country and but i mean just think about okay the value it would it would have for the court as an institution if the judge justices had to go out and circuit ride, okay, and you know, well, and wouldn't people pay a lot more attention to local courts? Pay attention to local courts, but I mean, it, I think it would it would help the courts legitimacy. <laughs> Can you imagine not showing up for your court date, and one of the judges on your appeals court was you know Elena Kagan? Like, what do yes. you what are you thinking? Like, I don't you know. know. You'd probably get some better attendance, but you would certainly. But, I, I, I mean, think the, it would open up a lot of interesting. Appreciate. I, I think the appreciation for the justices would also go up. The right. Legitimacy. Right. For the court. Right? Oh my gosh, fangirling! Okay. Like I would fangirl totally. I would be. I, 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 I would mean, be like, I, wait, a Supreme Court justice is here in Richmond. Let me knock you down to try to get a seat in that courtroom. Yeah, I mean, just to see I, how they work, how they yeah. function. Yeah, because, you know, I've listened to the oral arguments of the Supreme Court. I've read the transcripts, but I would love to go ahead and see, you know, for instance, Sonia Sotomayor or Sam Alito given some unprepared attorney the business. Oh, right. Okay. Right. Why did you come to court today? Yeah. I, but also just this idea of humanizing them in a way that they yes. currently are not. Yes. Now, I would like to addendum. Dr. Barton's uh, uh, suggestion with another suggestion, which is that I believe that the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court should be should should be um, hired separately under separate uh, um, expectations. That the Senate should be interviewing that person not as an attorney but as a manager, how are you going to manage, manage the court, the, yeah. the courts? Well, not just the Supreme court with the, eight but the federal behind the, you, but the, the, the federal judiciary. Yeah. Right. 
How are you going to manage all that? So I, so I think there are two things they could do that would really get at making the court work better in the sense of hiring that person as an administrator first and as an attorney second. You would, you know, to your point, I would actually like to see a, perhaps maybe a different committee in the Senate interview a nominee to be chief justice. Exactly. Okay. Okay. One of the ones that does administrative law and understands how. Yeah. Or, you know, the, uh, you know, the joint committee on government operations. Okay. So how well, do you feel about picking lunches for the cafeteria? Right. Yeah, like, right, right. Stuff okay. like that. Okay. What's your experience dealing with um, complaints made by employees against federal judges? Exactly. You know, what's your experience how, with it? How much HR knowledge do you have? Do you have, right? Okay. Have you, uh, do you have a certification of some kind? Do you have you a... Know, do you, have, you know, what kind of budget experience do you have? Right? Exactly. You know, because, you know, some of our better chief justices were former governors, right? And, you know, th- and they uh, are Earl, people who have had to do all that. You know, you know Earl Warren. Uh, or Chief Justice uh, Hughes, Charles Evans Hughes, right? They're former governors, right? Okay. Um, President Taft. You know, President Taft. Yeah, Although he right. wasn't, was he Chief Justice? Oh, yeah. Okay. okay. William Howard Taft was first president, hated that job, lost <laughs> in his reelection, right? But then gets appointed as Chief Justice, okay? Um, and by all accounts, okay, ran the court smoothly. Okay. See, it's a different skill set. Yeah. I think it's a different skill set than the other judges. And there's a part of me that thinks that maybe it's time that the Supreme Court just justice isn't a member of the court, like that there's a separate office that does that job. You know, we've kind of we're also a lot bigger than when this started out. I mean, think about when this job was first formed and this, the chief justice of the of the Supreme Court was the chief justice. How, really, how big was the court system at that point? It was not big. And, and you know, to your point, as a number of scholars have have remarked, uh, including most prominently uh, David O'Brien, the Supreme Court's become more bureaucratic. So, if the court itself and the federal judiciary in general has become more bureaucratic, it would probably make sense to have at least the head of the federal judiciary possessing some bureaucratic chops and skill, right? <laughs> okay? Right. I mean, we're, we're talking about thousands of employees, right? We're talking about a huge budget, right? Managing um, all that and still weighing in on court cases. This is, you know- Seems like that's a, it's two, two jobs you're asking a person to do. Yeah, at minimum, you the chief justice needs to be that very unusual person who is good at bureaucratic stuff, while also, you know, an expert in the law. Right. Right. And and really, are we going to find a person with that skill set? Rarely. Yeah. Rarely, we're going to find a person with both of those skill sets. That can be brought to bear at the, the same the, time. The career path of the modern Supreme Court justice. <laughs> exactly. Comes wait, back wait. to our lack of diversity of, lack if you've of never run anything. Yes, right? 
Okay. Then, um, you know, I mean, if you ran a newspaper or uh, if you write or if you ran a successful business or if you did or if you ran a diplomatic corps, you okay. have those skills. You have those. Yeah, you have those skills. Or, or think about, let's say you were. A private... uh, sorry, if you successfully did those things. Yeah, but I mean, skills. think about if you were a private practice attorney and you were the, you know, managing partner of a law firm of six people, right? Right. Okay. Uh, you know, that gives you a particular bureaucratic skill set um, that I think would be extremely valuable, okay, in dealing with, you know, you know, eight other justices right okay and their various clerks and you know paralegals etc cetera, etc cetera. i mean although yeah. i'm gonna still argue that volume counts here i mean oh, you're talking sure. about thousands of people involved in this agency but yeah. anyway so basically what we're getting at um uh president biden if you're listening is that we would like to see the court shaken up a little bit in terms of diversity of experience and job experience so and i will say get... and, 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 and i will say this Nia, uh, as we end this podcast one of the things that you are seeing with president biden's nominees for lower federal court positions is he is picking people okay with um, more experience as criminal defense attorneys, as civil rights attorneys, okay? He's gone beyond w- what we have typically seen from the last roughly four or five presidents, right? Okay, so he's trying yes. to build in some diversity for future... Yes, okay. Um, for future and, nominee picks, right? Because yeah. that's how this is going to work. They're going to work their way through yeah. the and, system. And, and, and even if these judges are not picked, you know, district court judges are not picked as appeals court judges, appeals court judges are not picked as Supreme Court justices. Just the greater, if you will, professional diversity, I would think would help the courts, okay? Um, Yay, changing okay. the justice system from within. Um, uh, and, and again, it, it, it's been a pretty concentrated effort and those of us who are judicial politics scholars have noted this. Um, um, and uh, and again, he's getting criticism from certain groups. You know, he's not focusing on other diversity measures as much. Okay, but you know, you can't please everybody. Right. Right. Um, and and guys, um, uh, uh, one last thing about diversity. Um, if nothing else, this episode should remind us that diversity has always been a consideration of presidential nominations for the Supreme Court, right? It was geographical diversity early on in our country's history, then it was religion, then it was race, then it was gender, okay? Diversity has always been a part of the calculus, right? Because these are prominent, high-profile government positions, all right? So, you know, when you hear people say diversity should not be a consideration, we should only focus on merit, 
Well, we already talked about merit. Okay. Yeah. There's no question that any of these people lack the the absolute qualifications to Keisha, be Keisha Dre. You know, I mean, I mean, as you you know, you know, to your point that you've mentioned in a couple of other podcast episodes, you know, President Biden did not do Judge Brown Jackson any favors, right, by saying that he was going to look for a black woman, because by pretty much any measure. She was qualified to be a Supreme Court justice. Right. And it has allowed the racist neo-Nazi jerks to say, Say, it's about her race. And I'm like, but look at her qualification. She's eminently qualified. But of course, they don't, that's not what they want to focus on. Yeah. And, 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 but, you know, anytime somebody goes ahead and says to me, you know, diversity should not be a factor. And I hear from folks on the left and folks on the right. I'm just like, then you're pretty much ignoring, you know, the totality of the history of picking Supreme Court justices in this country, right? Well, and, and the, I think very few presidents are going to put forward someone that is just wildly unacceptable. And the one time in my modern memory that I can think of it is Bush 42, 43, 43, sorry, 43. He picked Harriet Myers. Yes. Okay. Who I'm not entirely certain was ready to be a Supreme Court justice. No, I think she was a perfectly effective lawyer who right. had absolutely no experience being a judge. None whatsoever. And and that might, but her nomination did not go forward. Like she didn't, she didn't go before this the Senate because once she got the pushback, they they said, you know what, never mind. Most of the pushback came from Republican senators who met with her. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. But so I mean, there's the system, even though it's excruciating, it does actually help with, okay, we don't really think that you're that you're qualified. And, and uh, there are a couple of people on the Supreme Court right now, I'm not so fond of. But <clears throat> I would never say they were not qualified to be on the court. It's just that I don't like them. I don't like their ideological. Yeah, you may not like the jurisprudence, right? right? I mean, I mean, and, and I get asked that and I'm like, you know, I, I, but having that are... diversity is important, because if everybody thought like me, yes. well, they would always be right, but <laughs> they would also they would also be like it would not be fair to other people who don't think like me. One of the best things about our discussions is when you make me go, "Oh man," because you did that to me earlier when you were talking about one of the court cases. Little teaser for y'all for next time. Um, one of the court cases that came up that I actually agree with the six conservatives conservatives yes. and now i just have to think about my life choices so um actually that's well, I mean, not true because sometimes i'm conservative but, uh, and sometimes i'm liberal i'm regular i'm a regular american i have well i mean generally and it's kind speaking of, mixed and, beliefs and, and it's kind of sort of like the value of this podcast in my estimation when you go ahead and ask me a question where i'm just kind of sort of like i i would have never thought that right right and as somebody who studies this stuff, okay, it's kind of sort of my job to go ahead and 
consider all the possibilities, right? But exactly, that's what it does to me when you when you said that. I was like, oh man, okay. Because uh, it was, in fact, and we can briefly touch on it, um, even though we don't have a whole lot of time. So, uh, coach in Texas um, after the game takes a knee for prayer to to Not I assume yet. thank God for. Yeah, what we're talking about winning or losing the, or whatever uh, the the Bremerton case. Um, where uh, an assistant football coach um, was in the practice uh, of going to the middle of the field um, and kneeling down in silent prayer um, after uh, uh, the team's games. He got warned by the school district um, that school prayers were against school policy and more than likely violated Supreme Court precedent. Uh, after he got a warning, he continued with the practice. He got fired. And when he got fired, he went ahead and sued, claiming that it violated his free exercise rights um, under the First Amendment. The school district's defense was, we can't be having school prayer, okay, uh, during the normal school day, at graduation, or at football games. But his argument was, I'm not, as a school official leading prayer, I'm just an individual who is praying after the game. Not before the game where you make everybody be but silent was, or yes, listen yes. to a prayer, which I would, I would fire somebody for doing that because that's not, because well, now you're the, coercing well, other and people the, to either and listen and to that and, and that violates well-established Supreme Court precedent, right? Right. But right. his point was, okay, I'm not doing game, that. Yeah, the game is over. Okay. I'm not forcing anybody to listen to my prayer. And I'm not requiring any player or any coach from either our team or the opposing team to join me. I'm just kneeling down as an individual and praying to God and thanking God, okay, for this opportunity for, for football. These, yeah, for these, for these young men you know, to play this game and hopefully nobody got hurt. Right. And the Supreme court found for him. Well, no, we haven't, uh, as we're recording this podcast episode, the court has not announced its decision yet. Oh, okay. oh I see. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but oh, oh, I see. yeah. I okay. But, 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 but again, but I'm like, I kind of side with him and, and then I feel weird about it, but then I think, no, no, that's diversity. That's the point of this. I am not a person who engages in public prayer. No. Um, but I don't feel like it's, I don't feel like it's a violation of my rights in some way that he does that. Like, just do you, well, man. Like what? And, 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 it, and it begs the difficult question. At what point does the government avoiding establish, establishing religion? Step on. Yeah, cross the line and violate the second religion clause, which is the free exercise of one's religious beliefs. Okay? I'm sorry, I thought that had already been decided. No, but 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 again, that's why we have these discussions, right? right? Because you know, I end up learning uh, about things simply because we have these conversations, um, and and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna have that kind of learning if I just stay in my silo, 
right? Right. If all I do is read my books, right? Because, you know, I've been trained to think like a judicial politics scholar, right? I know the theories, you know, I know the boundaries, but unless I have conversations with folks, okay, who are coming to this, you know, Nia, a lot of these conversations we have, we're, you're coming to this, okay, with, in some ways, a blank slate, because you're just kind of sort of like, hey, when, I, when I'm president, I want to do X, <laughs> okay? It, at no point in my life have I ever thought, when I'm president, I want to do X. <laughs> and no really? Point, you're never. not power mad. See, join uh, me on the dark side. Okay, I'm... but but you know, but again, that reflects my background, my education. I mean, it's pretty hard to go ahead and think too grandiose when you're taught by nuns, right? I I you know, you I would know, argue that it also is is um, I firmly believe that most of the time I'm right. <laughs> except that's not true I'm, I'm i'm generally speaking open to being wrong and and open to to new ideas but i i think i come at these questions with a very much every man attitude of well yeah. if i was in charge see i also dream of winning the lottery and what i would do with the money so which is probably not something you do either it's just no. one of those no. personality quirks but this idea you know of I'll tell you my first thought was, what harm does it cause others? Because that's why we have laws. We have laws, not we or we shouldn't have laws in this country to prevent behavior. We should have laws in this country to prevent harm to others. Like, I don't care what you do if it doesn't hurt anybody. If you want to walk around naked in your backyard and it doesn't hurt anybody, go forth and do your thing, man. It's not up to me. I think we've gotten to this weird place in in law where we want to try to control behavior that isn't causing any harm to anybody else. And see, my perspective is slightly different, and it probably reflects the fact that I've spent so much time studying the law and studying constitutional law, which is I keep on going back to one of the primary purposes of law is to establish behavioral norms. So how do you avoid getting into trouble if you don't know what constitutes trouble? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I guess I'm arguing that trouble is, it's only trouble in reflection of other people. It's not a trouble for yourself. Okay, and but, it harm none, do as you will, right? Like, but, but, but the law represents the collective will. Right. So we're in the, in the democracy. Yeah, right? and I'm blah. <laughs> we should be we should be under the benign dictatorship of Nia. What's the name of your country? The benign dictatorship of Nia? Oh, okay. <laughs> I can't be too critical uh, about the creation <laughs> of said country, seeing as though I frequently remind my students that in my in my classes, I'm the benign dictator. <laughs> exactly. I'm only talking about doing that on a slightly wider scale. Just slightly. <laughs> Just slightly. <laughs> All right. So for listeners who looking for our next couple of episodes, they will be the wrap up of this season. And then we'll take a little break and then we'll see you back in the fall. But we will see you here next week for the wrap up of the SCOTUS term 
21, 22, because their term starts in the fall and goes through the spring. Yeah, much like the uh, academic school academic year. That's yes. right. It just it's, it's, again reflecting their um, so much their so academic much my, bent. Yeah, so much of my life is is basically based on you know uh, uh, you know late summer, early fall to late spring, early summer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. What do you mean you don't live in the semester world? Other people who don't live in the semester world are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, right. So. Exactly. All right. All right. Thanks, Augie. See you, Nia. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, Brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU Libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.